0: Support for WERU comes from our listeners and from Waterfront Concerts, presenting Dave Matthews Band, celebrating their 25th anniversary in 2016 at Darling's Waterfront Pavilion in Bangor on Wednesday, June 8th. Tickets on sale Friday, February 19th at noon. Three five eight nine three two seven waterfrontconcerts.com.
1: The time's 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org. The Democracy Forum with your host, Ann Luther, is up next. Good morning. Welcome to the Democracy Forum. This is the first program in our series this election year to be broadcast at this time on the third Friday of each month. We're featuring topics in participatory democracy, encouraging citizens to take an active role in government and politics. This program is a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERUFM. Our conversation today is about political equality the founding vision, the modern reality. What do we mean when we talk about political equality? Was it an ideal embraced by our founding fathers? What did it mean to them? What does it mean to us today? And to what extent has the founding ideal been realized in modern democracy? This is Anne Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. I'll be your host for the Democracy Forum, and let me introduce our guests. Joining us by telephone today is Professor Ralph Ketchum. Professor Ketchum is the Maxwell Professor Emeritus of Citizenship and Public Affairs at Syracuse University and Senior Research research associate at the Campbell Public Affairs Institute. Welcome, Professor Ketchum, not on the phone. Um, He'll be back. Hold on. Joining us in the studio today is Professor Mark Brewer. Professor Brewer is professor and interim department chair of political science at the University of Maine. Welcome, Professor Brewer.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: I'm glad you're here. In Should I introduce Megan? We are also joined in this studio today by Professor Brewer's daughter, Megan, who is a sixth grader and a history buff. And so she will be a silent presence here today, but we're very pleased to have her. In Federalist 57, James Madison wrote Who are to be the electors of the federal representative? Not the rich. More than the poor, not the learned, more than the ignorant, not the haughty heirs of distinguished names, more than the humble sons of obscurity and unpropitious fortune. The electors are to be the great body of the people of the United States. Of course, that ideal was not realized in practice, not at first to include women or blacks or many others without property means. But today, even though difficult progress has been made in many areas with women voting and so forth, with wealth and income inequality nearing or achieving an all-time high, with voting rights under assault around the country, and with money and politics dominating our political discourse, we may wonder whether we are any nearer to that vision, the founder's vision, than we were two and a half centuries ago. So that's what we're going to talk about today. And um, I wanted to put it to Professor Ketchum first, but since he's not on the phone, I'll have to turn to Professor Brewer first and ask you, how would you define, or how do you think the founders defined the ideal of political equality, and what were the debates that they had that led them uh, to the compromises that they made about voting rights and so forth?
0: Well, I think that's a—it's an obviously an incredibly important question. Um, I, I think I don't have to back up a little bit and say that there is to characterize that that as one singular kind of founding uh, vision uh, would be somewhat incorrect. Uh, the, the founders, um, even if you solely. Um, classify that group as those people who are present at the convention, which I would not. But even if you were just looking at, at those people present at the convention, there was a, a fairly um, diverse range of views on, on the question of political equality. If you expand the founders out to include those American um, elites and some non-elites uh, who ended up being opposed to the Constitution— Uh, the the diversity of views becomes even wider. But I think one one thing that you could certainly get widespread agreement on at the convention and then during the ratification debates was uh, among the founders, those that we call the founders, would be that the American experiment had to rest in this idea of popular sovereignty, that ultimately the people rule now um, and and that all people – um, with a more narrower definition of those who counted as citizens and people, uh, than we much narrower than we have today, but that ultimately all of those people um, were entitled to participate in some way, shape, or form. Um, then That's where it gets interesting, uh, because then you start to see some differences in um, the degree to which the people um, should participate, how much influence they should have, and I think we're still having those debates to a certain extent today, for sure.
1: Um- were were enfranchising women? Was that idea even considered in that group?
0: Uh, it was. It was not considered at the convention, as far as we can tell. I mean, obviously, we do not have a complete record of what went on at the federal convention that, that came up with the Constitution. Uh, they swore themselves to secrecy, um, and they actually managed to, to keep that during the convention, despite. Um, as we can tell from the records, the prodigious amount of alcohol that many of them <laughs> consumed at the end of each day's deliberations, but they, they kept their they kept their secrecy. Um, we did, we got partial notes after the convention was done, and some people talked about the rules. We get Madison's notes long after um, the convention is over, and, and everyone's died. Uh, but even Madison's notes are not complete, so as fu- as best we can tell, the the idea of enfranchising women was not. Um, brought up much less seriously considered at the convention. But we do know that in the larger kind of American society, there were uh, voices, primarily female voices, who um, were raising that point for sure.
1: Going all the way back. And uh, Professor Ketchum, are you on the phone with us now? Yes. Oh, good morning. Welcome to our show. We introduced you earlier, so happy to have you with us. Good, thank you. We were just talking about, uh, for a moment, what the founders' ideal of political, uh, political equality was. And Professor Brewer, your former student, was just um, talking about the idea of popular sovereignty. And I hate to put you on the spot, but would you like to talk about that a little bit? What was the founders' view of political equality, and how did they um, discuss or compromise over that ideal, even during the initial Declaration of Independence and the initial constitutional process?
2: Well, it's it's kind of a complicated question because uh, you can enter into it in all sorts of ways. Um, uh, um, I I think, you know, some of the pundits are right Mm -hmm. that the uh, uh, county era was more... uh, focused on, uh, on liberty than equality, but I, I don't really think that's, that's so. They, they wouldn't have thought of the two as opposites. You know, the, the introductory paragraph or second of the Declaration of Independence says uh, says both, that all are created equal and they're endowed with certain rights, certain liberties, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And uh, when Jefferson wrote that phrase, uh, he wasn't worried about a conflict between the two. He was interested in how uh, each contributes to the other. And uh, I, I just think the, uh, the, and they, they saw each goal, equality, and liberty, as uh, uh, important. For the new nation, you know, when Lincoln described what happened four score and seven years ago, it was a, to a new nation dedicated to the proposition that all are created equal and are endowed with certain inalienable rights, liberty, endowed with liberty, dedicated and conceived. He did the same thing. He put the two together. He, he didn't think of them as uh, uh, contradictory, as, as some. Uh, arguments do today.
1: So would they have included political equality or a right to participate equally in political society as part of that concept of all men are created equal?
2: Well, uh, the, the business of, uh, of liberty, when the word liberty is used in the Declaration and in a, all through the founding documents, the main liberty they're talking about is liberty to take part.
1: Uh-huh.
2: When Patrick Henry said, "Give me liberty or give me death," he was talking about liberty to take part in the government of his colony and not having George III run the colony. And and I, the the other rights which were, were important and were part of the picture, uh, were all uh, contributory to the main one. Liberty meant. The liberty of a human being to to live in a society uh, of, of his security and to be able to uh, take part in the direction of that society. Uh, the, the fundamental right that that's, in a way that's all Jefferson ever talked about. Mm-hmm. And and I, I think uh, uh, the the uh, uh, the thing that they wanted liberty, was to control their lives rather than have someone else control it.
1: How radical an ideal was popular democracy at that time? We like to think we were the first, but was it really a big departure from the common practice?
2: I I think it was, although it was uh, was a very new idea. Jefferson said in the Declaration that that he's, uh, he's bringing to the fore uh, ideas that have been around for a long time. He's thinking of Locke and so on, and and he's thinking about the, the gradual growth of, of more uh, participation and democracy in, in England, although it's very limited, uh, and it had been practiced in some degrees in the colonies. So it wasn't as though they were... Uh, doing something that had never been done before. And they talk all the time about how what they want to do is to be able to complete uh, this idea of uh, of a sovereign people uh, taking charge of their own government. So, and, and that hadn't been ever been done in quite that way, and, and the ideals of the Declaration, and then the, the movement toward the Constitution and so on. All of this was uh
1: relatively new at that time so so mark how did slaves and unpropertied men fit into this idea of popular sovereignty i mean those people weren't automatically swept into this ideal in the beginning
0: no you're absolutely right on that and that's it's a really important question um i i think the issue of of slavery uh, (laughs) especially if we get we, we look at the the federal constitution in philadelphia was was widely recognized as, as so potentially um, toxic that, that um, it, there was a, a uneasy kind of agreement early on to, to say, okay, this one is off the table, really. Um, even, at, even though there were some delegates uh, there who were interested in, um, if not full abolition, at least moving in that direction, it, it was widely recognized that if this issue came up in any serious way, um, the business there would be over. So, so slavery was was set aside. You can almost portray that as the founders punting in some ways on that issue. And that comes back, obviously, we have to deal with that in, in the Civil War era, which some would characterize as almost a second founding period. Um, unpropertied males, on the other hand, that's a, that's a more nuanced question. I think even, even before we get to the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia during the years um, after independence is achieved and the states are are running their own business uh, under the Articles of Confederation, you, s- you see in a lot of the states um, efforts and, and laws put in place getting rid of pop- property requirements for political participation. Now, not in all states, but it's certainly in some. And, and ironically, it's those states that maybe went the furthest in getting rid of those qualifications that we see kind of the most anxiety or unhappiness or almost fear of the constitution when it comes out of the convention Um, property requirements hung on obviously after the constitution we don't see um, states fully eliminate them for white males until the the era of andrew jackson in the 1820s and 1830s but it's not it's it's often portrayed that oh that all the states had property requirements until the 1820s and 30s that's not that's not true um, there was some movement in that direction even predating the constitution
1: what was the rationale for I uh,
2: mean hi mark good, uh, good to talk to you good to talk I, to you too good to visit uh, yeah another way to look at what mark is talking about is that uh, you know a lot of things in the that we think of as important were were on the table in a way in the period leading up to the constitution uh for example property rights uh when that was when that was brought up uh, they they voted down having uh anything about that in the constitution but they realized that it was part of the states but the people at this convention expected the states to do as they did to gradually uh, eliminate those and, and the same thing was true with with slavery, it's true. Mark said they decided they couldn't go ahead with the Constitution uh, and include the southern states if they made a direct attack on slavery. But when they talked about it at the convention, the delegates said, northern delegates that didn't like slavery said, uh, yeah, we'll go along with this, but we expect that slavery will become only a speck on the horizon as time goes on. They, they thought it was on the way out. Uh, same, same way you could think of uh, uh, education. The uh, Constitution doesn't say anything about it, but it was expected that the states would take care of that. They also expected on the basis of suffrage uh, that what's the Constitution say exactly? Well, it says that suffrage for the lower house, the House of Representatives, will be the same as the lower house in the state legislatures. And they expected that that qualification would also go down and the Constitution would follow it. In other words, they, they were, had very much on their minds what they expected the course of political exploration would be in the future. And in almost every case, they were expecting uh, the, the more democratic, the more uh, uh, liberal part of the argument at the convention that would would gradually win out.
1: Thank you, Ralph. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther of the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our topic today is political equality, the founding vision, the modern reality. Our guests this morning are Professor Ralph Ketchum, Maxwell Professor Emeritus of Citizenship and Public Affairs at Syracuse University, and Professor Mark Brewer, Professor of Political Science at the University of Maine. We've been talking about the founders' ideal or definition of what political equality might mean and how that translated into practice, what their expectation was of how that would unfold over time um, as the democracy matured. So I I wanted to ask a little bit more about um, the culture of engagement, and I remember from some of my own history courses this sort of concern about the mob mentality and representative government, um, and even thinking about who the founders were. They were an elite of sorts of themselves, mostly well-to-do, prosperous, very well-educated people. So, you know, sort of thinking about the group of men who put this together as being a group of elites of in and of themselves, how did they conceive of class and participation among upper and lower classes in the context of this founding document? Mark, you go first.
0: Well, that's another very important question. I, I think, again, we need to we need to look at some nuance here because if we're going to get a different answer that to that question depending on which group of the founders we look at, I think I think you're right in that certainly the the men who gathered at the convention were what we would today call political elites, although the term that term would have been foreign to them. They would have had no idea what that meant. But certainly they were all um, educated for their time. Some would be still highly educated for today. Um, They were all relatively well off uh, with the possibility of one exception. Um, And and they all um, were property owners, some were speculators, um, etc. That's also true uh, of many of those who came to be the most vociferous opponents of ratification of the Constitution once it came out of Philadelphia. I mean, if you look, um, you know, by some measures, George Mason, who was at the convention... Uh, was the wealthiest man in in, in America at that point, um, and was and was opposed to the Constitution?
1: Um, On what grounds? Uh,
0: he, he was opposed uh, primarily um, that uh, it was a, it was a states' rights argument, um, and he had uh, he had the advantage of be- that many anti-federalists didn't have. He had been at the convention and had been able to follow the arguments all the way through. Um, but he was not the he was he wasn't an exception. There were a lot of of well-to-do men um, throughout uh, the, the various states many in Virginia some in New York some in Massachusetts some in Pennsylvania who were opposed to the document uh, for for them um, I think a really kind of interesting question was where should authority lie and they all I think they all agreed that authority came from the people as a collective but They differed a little bit on which groups of people should have how much. And if you look at um, people like Madison and Alexander Hamilton, they firmly believed in, you know, something that then was termed the natural aristocracy, that, that there were people who by training and by talent and by education and by experience were better equipped to actually govern than others and that we needed to put a system in place that allowed that natural aristocracy to govern to the greatest degree possible, and and they were disgusted um, under the Articles that that wasn't happening in a lot of states. Madison, in particular, just appalled. Um, you know, Rhode Island was the most common target for disgust, but it wasn't the only one.
1: Why? Why was it viewed that way?
0: Well, Rhode Island, um, and and uh, not only Rhode Island, but again, Rhode Island, you could see it as the poster child for this. You know, Rhode Island um, was being run. Uh, by a state legislature that was populated by members of not Madison's natural aristocracy. Um, and they were putting in place a number of policies um, that made a mockery out of uh, property rights and contract rights. And, and Madison um, said that if you can't have liberty um, if you have a government that puts policies in place like this. And so, so Madison and, and a lot of other supporters of the Constitution said, you know, we, we have to have a system, yes, that is rooted in popular sovereignty, and yes, um, all of those who qualify as citizens certainly get to participate, and power and authority ultimately flows from them. But we need to have those who are better equipped actually do the governing. Um, anti-federalists would very much disagree with that and said that, that no, that, that's not the kind of system we want. We want a system where the governors look like the people. Um, again, recognizing that the people were mostly white men. Um, that's who they would count as the people. So the, it's a fundamental disagreement over the Constitution. In some ways, I think we have that disagreement still today in American society. Exactly.
2: You, you, you could add a little bit to that. you can see the point mark is making. If you look at the geography, Rhode Island is just a, it's just a big seaport. There's no hinterland. And the hinterland were the farms in Massachusetts and Connecticut. And, and what uh, uh, Rhode Island was doing was taking advantage of its geography as a seaport and uh, uh, not de- treating the, the people in Massachusetts and Connecticut that wanted to use the seaport as commerce. Uh, they, they took advantage of that, and they made their own selfish interest ahead, and uh, uh, yes, at the market right, Madison thought this was a great vice, as he put it in a famous paper of uh, uh, of, of Rhode Island. They were thinking of their own selfish economic needs, and and could tell of anything else. And and I I I think uh, uh, Madison was quite clear that that uh, the country as a whole couldn't work with that sort of. Uh, power and that sort of greediness uh, in a position to control events.
1: It's interesting to hear this talk about the federalists and the anti-federalists and who should have, let's say, even if the authority came from popular sovereignty, who actually had governing, let's say, power or influence. Um, And I'm really interested in your comment that some of these strains, these tensions in American democracy are still playing out today as we try to figure out what is political equality, who should have influence, who should speak with a louder voice, money is politics, and all those things. But I'd be interested to hear you both talk about how those strains of political equality sort of played out over the century that in the two centuries that followed, really bringing us up to today. I mean, these things must have continued to wax and wane um, over the 19th and 20th centuries, right?
0: Well, I think absolutely. I mean, I think if you look, if you're looking at the broad scope, if you're looking at the 200-plus years um, since the Constitution was ratified, I think there has been waxing and waning for sure. Although the the kind of if you want to characterize it as the arc of history has been in the direction of um, greater political equality. You know there have been times where political equality seemingly has been achieved only to be taken away to be given back again later. Um, but I think grand arc has been towards more political equality. But that has been hotly contested um, and and remains contested today. I mean if you want to look at, in some ways, the debate about uh, those. Um, immigrants who are here undocumentedly or illegally in the eyes of some and uh, what should be done with them, in some ways you could look at that as an argument about political equality. You know, do they, do they get to participate? What kind of a stake in this do they have? And, and some people who are saying, well, they've been here. They've been law-abiding. They've been paying their taxes. They should they clearly have some skin in the game. They should get to participate. Um, others who are saying no, they came here illegally. They've broken the law. Um, there are others who have followed the rules, and, and this would be punishing those who followed the rules and, and benefiting those who didn't. And so I, I think grand – big picture, we've, we've headed towards greater political equality, but it has not been – Um, all in one direction. There have been backwards moves, for sure. Um, And it has not been uh, without serious conflict and contest over time. And and we continue to see that today.
1: For sure. Would you like to add to that, Ralph, in terms of how this has unfolded? I
0: I
2: think it's true. One way to look at it, of course, is is just look at the way the Constitution itself has changed on the issue of, if we mean by political equality, uh, access or inclusiveness, there's a huge amount of of inequality uh, present at the time the Constitution was drafted, but what have we? What's happened since? Well, it's been a, a steady process of, of sort of uh, inclusion. The Fourteenth, Thirteenth, Fourteenth, and Fifteenth Amendments say you can't exclude uh, former slaves or blacks anymore. They are. They have. Uh, what's the famous phrase in the Fourteenth Amendment? They have. Equal access to the laws, or something like that, and and then we decide a little later on that 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 women shouldn't be classified that way. There's no reason why they shouldn't be part of the political process. So we have the 14th, have the 20th amendment saying women can't be excluded. Uh, A little later on, we decide that people that are 18 or old enough to participate in politics. They they have equal access, so we have the amendment of permitting allowing eighteen year olds to vote. Uh, all of and, and same way with poll taxes. In other words, the, the Constitution has always uh, confronted its own exclusions by uh, eliminating them <laughs> as time went on, uh, and and it's, it's I I think that's uh, in, in a way. Be included is a, a basic way to think of of uh, equality, political equality. How
1: has the how has the concept of a natural aristocracy evolved over time? I mean, we don't really hear that word anymore, but we do hear the word political elites. Um, you know, how has the concept of a natural aristocracy and democracy evolved, and who do you think would be the equivalent of that natural aristocracy in American democracy today? Go ahead, Ralph. You try it. Yeah. Well,
2: well, we, we, you know, we still uh, 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 fuss around with that idea. Uh, you know, the, the assumption to begin with, for example, this has to do with immigration, uh, was that... Uh, There would be a gradual education of the citizenry, so that they could become a kind of uh, uh, sort of junior aristocracy that would have sense enough to to uh, choose the, the people through education and experience and so on were were uh, uh, really qualified to run the government. Uh, <laughs> today, it would it would focus on. Uh, 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 questioning the capacity of Donald Trump to <laughs> to, to be uh, a candidate for the presidency, they they uh, when, when the question of qual- <laughs> qualification for the president came up in the Constitutional Convention, George Mason that that uh, Mark mentioned uh, said, well, referring the presidential election to the people is like referring the choice of colors to a blind person. And and they they always was the thinking that there had to be an increase in the capacity of of the public and then of those holding the offices to be themselves uh, but I to me the word that needs to be put in here is the word that Franklin used at the convention. We need to pay attention to their public spiritedness, the extent to which they uh, understand the country's problems and the country's existence in terms of the public good of the whole country. And uh, actually, this is what Obama talks about all the time, and he, he's in that tradition. Uh, and and I think uh, 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 the, the, the tendency to look for people who are well-qualified, I guess, again, I think of the Republican uh, not nomination, uh, business uh you know out of the 12 or 14 that started out i would think that only two or three would have been qualified to be president and and it's uh we we still look for that quality although there's also a huge uh usually called populism but a, a sense that no you don't need to fuss with all of that just whatever uh whatever is out there in in the uh in in the uh, sway of demagogues and the fuss over politics and the the mixture of local concerns and all that. But you just let, let, uh, let, let the country be governed by whoever wins in all of that turmoil. That's what's going on now in the Republican, well, in both primaries in a way, but especially the Republican
1: one. At this point, I think I'd like to invite listeners to join our conversation. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this morning are Professor Ralph Ketchum, Maxwell Professor Emeritus of Citizenship and Public Affairs at Syracuse University, and Professor Mark Brewer, Professor of Political Science at the University of Maine. Our topic today is political equality, the founding vision, the modern reality. If you have a question or comment, about our topic today, you can join our conversation by calling toll-free 866-625-9378 or if you're calling locally 469-0500. I'd like to um, ask you both to talk about some of the factors that you think might be affecting political equality or pressing on political equality today. Um, you know, we've suggested some like money in politics or the quality of public education, preparing people to take a role in citizenship. We've seen polls from some jurisdictions that indicate very poor people vote at a much lower rate than people of better means. You know, lots of factors into the mix here. But what would you say are the factors that are pressing on or Working against and for political equality in the modern reality. Go ahead, Mark.
0: Well, I think the, the most obvious is, and the one that gets the most attention is the is the vast amount of money that's in American politics, particularly electoral politics, right now. It's it's we we are in in many ways, we are are back almost to the late nineteenth, early twentieth century before we had any campaign finance laws on the books. Um, some would say, and I would put myself in this camp that. We're possibly even in a worse spot there, because at least at that point, most of the money tended to flow through political parties, uh, which allowed a certain amount of accountability. Um, And today, uh, that is not necessarily the case. So I think that's the most obvious one. And I think it's something we need to pay attention to. Uh, But for me, um, I tend to, to be a little contrarian on this. I'm not as concerned about the presence of big money in American politics as many others are. I've, I am very concerned about accountability and disclosure. Uh, but it, for me, as long as you could tell where it's coming from and where it's going, I'm, I'm less concerned. Uh, for me, the biggest issue, I think the biggest thing we need to confront is, and you, you, you mentioned this a little bit, Anne, when you talked about discrepancies in education, it, it really is the vast difference in civic skills. You know, so, some Americans are much better equipped through their education, through their family background, through um, the, the the profession or the occupation they hold, to participate in in American politics than others, and and pol- participation in politics is just about like anything else, right? The the more you do it, the better equipped you are, the more likely you are to do it, and those that those differences are dramatic. Yeah,
1: um, I'm going to interrupt you there because we do have a caller on the line, Leah from Mount Desert. Go ahead with your question or comment.
3: Thank you. Um, If I heard this correctly, Professor Ketchum suggested that the founders expected democracy to blossom and become more participatory as time went on. Um, I am wondering, um, it brought up the whole question to me that I've been thinking about since uh, Justice Scalia died, about originalism. Justice Scalia, in discussions, has questioned whether the 14th Amendment applies to women because it did not apply to women at, at uh, the founding of the country. So I'm wondering if you can talk about originalism and your views on whether it's appropriate in um, the current climate we have and how... Bush v. Gore and Citizens United um, fit into a doctrine of originalism? And I'll take my answer off the air.
1: Thanks, Leah. Professor Ketchum, do you want to go first on that one?
2: Yeah, this, it's a good one and an interesting one. Uh, you know, as a student of the founding era and so on, uh, I I like the idea of originalism. I I like the idea of trying to understand the Constitution in terms of what those who founded it and ratified it uh, thought it was and thought it meant. Uh, The trouble with Justice Scalia and Robert Bork and Ed Meese and others who've been big originalists the last 20 or 30 years is that they approach it. In a very literal way, that is, they think you can find the original meaning of the Constitution by looking at hard at the words that are in it, uh, and that that that's re- really really hard to do because there's a great tendency then to to think of the words possibly meaning the same thing that they mean today, uh, which which really isn't true.
1: I see, Mark. But the nodding. words
2: had, had different connotations.
1: Yeah. I see Mark nodding his head. I think he has something to add.
0: Well, I think I think Dr. Ketchum's absolutely correct there. I mean, I think uh, uh, there is great value in trying to understand the intent of those um, individuals who debated and designed and ultimately ratified the Constitution. Uh, there's great there's no doubt there's great value there. That being said, um, the way in which Justice Scalia and others um, who proudly have called themselves originalists approach it by trying to look at the exact wording and think that it means the same today that it meant then, um, in my opinion, is flat out wrong. Um, And more than that, I think in some ways, and I'm not trying to, to label Justice Scalia as a hypocrite, but if you look at Scalia's record, origi- his, his embracement and utilization of originalism really only came to the forefront when it suited his purpose. If, if, if his purpose was something else, he was happy to abandon it. And, and that's not unusual. I mean, Supreme Court justices, conservatives, liberals, originalists, uh, living, breathing constitution people, they all do that. Um, so I, I think Ralph is absolutely right on that.
1: Um, This is the Democracy Forum on WERU. Our topic today is political equality, the founding vision, the modern reality. We are taking your calls. You can join the conversation, toll-free 866-625-9378 or locally 469-0500. We have another caller, Catherine from Appleton. Go ahead, Catherine. You're on the air. Yes,
4: good morning. Good morning. I would love it if um, one of the two professors would clear this up for me. I am aware from what I have read that there are two basic game plans happening here in America. There is uh, law of the land, which is the laws of the Constitution, and then there is legal law, which is the corporate law. And from what I've read, America, the United States of America became a corporation back in 1891, 1893 down on the island of Puerto Rico. that everything is incorporated. I mean, everything. Our school, everything. Our libraries, our towns, the United States of America. And I'm, I'm, I can understand now perhaps why the two parties really don't adhere to the laws of the Constitution. Um, again and again, the voice of the people are not heard when we call up and we ask them to consider or ask them to vote or that we're not pleased with this or that, and they just go ahead and. Listen to the corporation. So I would like it if you would um, clear me up on that. It sound- I'll, I'll yeah. get off the
1: air. No, thank you, Catherine. It sounds like your question is about corporatocracy, rule of American government by corporations, and I would be interested in your comment on that. I'll let you go first this
0: time, Mark. Well, I, I'm. I, I guess I'm. I'm not fully sure that I understand the question, but I, I'll. I'll take a crack at it based on on how you characterize it, Anne. um th- I think there's there's no doubt that. Um, Quote unquote, corporate America has a a large degree of influence in contemporary American government and politics. I I think it would be a mistake to think that that's something new. Um, I think you could go back, um, you know, we were talking um, off the air pre show about the Gilded Age. You could go back to Gilded Age America, and I would say corporate America at that point had an even greater influence. Um, You know, you could say J.P. Morgan was by far the most important man in America for a number of years, um, and, and you wouldn't be wrong on that. Uh, so that so yes, corporate America does have a, a fairly large amount of influence in American politics and government. That being said, I think it would be a mistake to say that it is the only influence. And I would think it would be an even it'd be even worse mistake to think and to try to make the argument that the voice of the people has been rendered um, irrelevant or meaningless. I think we can see plenty of examples where the voice of the people, is listened to, and you may not like this, but you could certainly make a case that right now, the primary reason for Donald Trump's success is the voice of the people. It's not corporate America that's driving Donald Trump. I, I, you know, it's 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 uh, they have other preferences, but you know, there are some people who are disgruntled and um, do not like the direction the country is headed in. I think you know, Ralph mentioned populism earlier. It's it's certainly in play here. It's something I'm I'm doing some research on right now. Um, so, so yes, corporate America influential. Absolutely. No. Is it new? No. Is it, does it dominate American politics and government? I would say no, although some would disagree with that.
1: Do you want to add to that or comment, Ralph? Uh,
2: yeah, I, I, I would add only that the place where I think the question you're speaking of is, is most at issue now is, is over the question of, the proper regulation of the big banks that people blame for having caused the, the Great Recession. And the, as part of the recovery from the recession was the passage of, uh, what is it, uh, somebody or other, Frank? Dodd-Frank. You know, like, uh, yeah, Dodd-Frank, which tried to have regulations that would prevent the big banks from doing the things that brought on the Great Recession, fussing around with the mortgages and so on and elizabeth warren i, I think person on this she, she thinks that there ought to be more regulation and those regulations ought to be enforced which would be a way of of subordinating uh the corporations to uh the public interest which comes from the laws that that congress might pass to provide for rules and regulation that the big banks have to agree to. And they're, they're very resistant to that. And I, I, I think there's no grounds for, for that resistance.
1: We have another caller on the line. It's Susan from Southwest Harbor. Go ahead with your question.
5: Hi there. Yeah I'd like to um, hear more about um, the role of public education, uh, public education, the backbone of democracy, public education where everyone can get it education for free and i believe over the last you know few decades of that public education has become a place where children who can't afford another option go um to schools that are public schools and certainly in some areas of the country where the assumption is that you send your child to a private school could you talk about the sort of the lessening of uh, the importance of public education in this country um, and what that means to political participation. You touched on it. I'd just like to hear more.
1: Thank you, Susan. And, And also, you know, when did it become important for universal public education to be a tool for popular democracy? Was that a thing? And how did that sort of get undermined? Go ahead, Mark. I see you.
0: Well, I, I mean, I think you know Ralph mentioned earlier that you know education is not mentioned in the Constitution, and and the, the founders uh, really viewed that as as something that was not a prerogative of the of the new s- central federal government. That was something that would be left to the to the states and and to municipalities. I think the advent of of what we now refer to as kind of universal public education doesn't really start uh, in its entirety, at least for preparing citizens to participate in a democracy it really starts um, as a way to Americanize the massive number of immigrants coming into the country starting in the 1820s and 30s um, in particular there's a there's a relatively strong uh, anti-catholic bent to it in a lot of places but but there's no doubt that it's evolved over time to that we value um, public education as a way to prepare our young people to not only succeed in their personal lives but to um, participate uh, in full uh, in our representative democracy, and and um, to fulfill their responsibilities as citizens, um, which is something that not a lot of people talk about anymore. The last public figure that I can recall really talking about that in any meaningful way uh john uh, john mccain's talked about it uh in both of his campaigns for presidency and, and that, that as citizens we not only have liberties and rights but responsibilities so I, but i think the caller's right is it's it's something that doesn't get nearly the attention it deserves
1: do you want to add to that ralph public education and preparing people to play an active role as citizens
2: yeah i, I would just say that public education is an exceedingly broad term and it, its original intention and this would be true, well, Jefferson talks about it all the time, that it's, it's education to be an effective participation in the public affairs of their country, to be good citizens. And Horace Mann, when he put this in Massachusetts, said that, that we, we need to prepare good citizens because if we don't, we'll have a, a mass that will be worse than the invasion of the Goths and the Vandals. And so... It has always meant, and this would refer to the private-public distinction that some people make. Private education is public education; it has to be. If it isn't, it's not fulfilling its purpose, and not, not to be thought of as a substitute for public education. Public education has to be basically citizenship, and, and it—it's uh, uh, true. It'll help people with their private lives and all that. That's all to the good, but. Uh, there can be no substitute and this is why uh, uh, I, I think John Dewey was good for the country he had the idea that that he had to build this participatory attitude toward democracy right into this curriculum of the grade schools and, and it was a way of dealing with a person's publicness and that, that that that's that's the whole point. of course it's free and of course it's open to everybody and of course it has no no uh, no class of financial distinction, because everybody has to be the recipient of the publicness of the education.
1: We've got one more caller on the line. I think this will probably be our last caller for today. Daniel from Dedham, go ahead.
6: Uh, Good morning. I uh, have been learning a lot by listening to these uh, two well-educated men and and, uh, they seem to have a lot of wisdom. I One of the reasons why I've gotten involved in following the politics this year is because the truth is being told, I think, for, for the first time to the American people. And they spend a lot of time talking about equal rights for each person. And I've never felt like, even though I, you know I'm a college professor, I've never felt like I had equal access to my representative or my senator. I think uh, even though I was a member of national conservation groups uh, who have access, um, big corporations have access, big money has access, big donors have access, and I think that's the thing that Bernie is really tapping into, uh, and I agree with him on most of his issues, except I don't agree that free education, I think that we should serve our country first. Uh, I was in I was in Vietnam and used the GI Bill to get an education, so for every year... That someone wants to uh, serve the people, helping the poor or whatever they do that they're calling, they should get a year of credit towards the uh, college and, or the trade of any kind. So anyway, i just like to hear what the callers might feel about, uh, about that idea.
1: I mean, the question of equal access sort of gets at the heart of this equal representation question. And you are both probably aware of the research coming out of Princeton that says – you know, ordinary people have very little influence on public policy outcomes, where rich donors have a very significant influence on public policy outcomes, and I think that's perhaps what Daniel is getting at. Would you care to comment on that, Ralph? Uh,
2: yeah, I I, uh, I I agree that there there ought to be a way for uh, everybody to take part in the. A- Need for education for their public performance as citizens. Uh, the, the idea of giving GIs, the, the GIs I went to school on the GI Bill under World War Two, and and that was that, that was a wonderful thing. There's good research on the incredible value of the GI Bill for the civic engagement of the country for the next generation or two, uh, and, and that that shows how important it was for those men to be able to to get an education and then engage in uh be good public citizens and and uh, uh i i don't i don't somehow or other we've got to figure out a way for everybody to to uh have access to that as much as possible uh, maybe free tuition is going too far maybe there's other ways but that, that ought to be a crucial uh, intention of, uh, uh, of our government to prepare its citizens, prepare people to be good
1: citizens. Do you want to add to that Ralph? And I think it's all, it's not only equal access to good education, but it's also equal access to an influence over our elected representatives, but jump in.
0: Well, well, I mean, I think that the, the, the caller's absolutely right in that, and that not everyone has equal access by any means to those people who are making the policy decisions. That's never been the case uh, in american's America's political and governmental system, you could make the argument that it should be, but it never has been. Um And I would argue the Constitution's not designed for it to be that way.
1: Was it part of their ideal, even if it wasn't part of their document? Uh,
0: that that's a that's a, a tough question to answer. i I, I guess if I'm going to look at them as a collective, uh, which is somewhat difficult to do, but I will, um, I I think I'd have to answer no on that. Um, I I don't think that was the goal. Um, The the founders were scared to death by democracy. You know, they did not institute a democracy. They introduced a Republican small r form of government. Today, we would characterize that more as representative democracy. But the idea of democracy, straight up democracy scared the daylights out of them. Um, in fact, I think if you would have put the choice to them of um, constitutional monarchy or straight democracy, they would have taken constitutional monarchy. So uh, I think we have to be careful um, when we talk about this whole idea of equal access. And I'm not saying it's not a good idea or it's not something we should aim for, but that was not their intent. And and we've never had a system like that. Um, you could make the case that access is more unequal now than it, than it has been in quite some time. And I think you, you could uh, do a fair job of that. But um, I think we just need to be careful about looking back at the past through some rose-colored glasses at something that really didn't exist. Yep.
1: I'm really sorry that we don't have time to talk about the waves of populism that have rolled through the country, because I think we're starting to nibble around the edges of that, and that would be a topic for a whole other show. But we are running out of time this morning, so I want to give you each just one moment to give a parting thought uh, Professor Ketchum, just a summary sentence or two?
2: Uh, I would say the two things that presently prevent uh, equal access, you're going to get it all. Well, one is what we've talked about, the influence of money. That does allow people to have more access. And the other is the gerrymandering. And, and the, Good point. So those are the two things that need to be done.
0: Thank you. Mark? Well, I would agree on the – I agree on both, but I was – especially – we did not get to talk about gerrymandering at all today, and that has a big – plays a big role in what we're really trying to get at today. I mean, we've got – when we're looking at 435 House of Representatives districts in the United States, and we're looking at each election cycle, between 30 and 50 of them are truly competitive that's not all due to gerrymandering. Some of it's just due to like-minded people generally tend to live next to each other. So part of it's that, but part of it is that we're cooking the books. And again, that's not a new thing that's been around for as long as the Constitution's been around, but it's reached levels today that, that we've we've never seen before. I think that's something we really need to, to look at going forward.
1: Thank you both so much. We are out of time this morning. I want to thank our guests, Professor Ralph Ketchum, the Maxwell Professor Emeritus of Citizenship and Public Affairs at Syracuse University, and Professor Mark Brewer, Professor of Political Science at the University of Maine. You've been listening to the Democracy Forum, a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERUFM. Thank you to Amy Brown, who produced our show, our engineer this morning, and thank you to our listeners. Our next program will be broadcast at 10 o'clock a.m. on March 18th, when our topic will be equal representation, wealth and income inequality, money and politics. If you have a suggestion for a topic or guest on a future democracy forum or to join the League of Women Voters, you can email us down east at lwvme.org or visit us at our website, lwvme.org, or call the League of Women Voters, 622-0256. Thank you all very much. We'll see you next month.